near-death experience podcast, an ongoing exploration of spiritually transformative experiences, including NDEs and other phenomena, in order to elucidate the ineffable and better understand our spirituality. All episodes are available at ndepodcast.org. The views expressed and opinions given by the individual hosts and guests are not necessarily those of NDE Podcast, the NDERF, any sponsors, or for that matter, anyone else. In the end, the only opinion that really matters is yours. near-death experience podcast item number 403 aka patreon item number 012 january 31st 2023 sci show psych what causes ndes welcome to near-death experience podcast the official podcast and source of audio accounts for the near-death experience research foundation i'm your host john messer This item is the 12th episode that Chaz originally released as a Patreon item. Welcome to Near-Death Experience Podcast, Patreon edition, episode number 12. I'm Chaz Hathaway, author of Life in the Spirit World, What Near-Death Experiences May Teach About Life on the Other Side. We're going to have a little fun today. I found a video by uh, uh, SciShow, let's see, what's it called? SciShow Psych, um, a YouTube channel, which is really a fun channel. I recommend it for anybody who's into science or just, uh, you know, stuff that you you want to get your kids excited about, about interesting topics and so forth. It's a great channel. Uh, SciShow as in S-C-I-S-H-O-W, Psych as in psychology. And... Um, and you may have actually seen some of his videos before, but I noticed uh, that about six m- months ago, he put up a video explaining near-death experiences. And so when I saw this, I'm like, oh, I got to see this. <laughs> and it's pretty stereotypical of science's approach to near-death experiences. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to play the audio from this video, and then we'll talk about it afterward. Okay, and, and let me say up front, too, before you get all up in arms, because I imagine that most of you believe in near-death experiences, as I do, and before you, you know, start getting ready to, you know, fight him on the first things that he's saying, and then, you know, no, 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 you're, no, 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 you know, just hear him out, and uh, the only way we're going to get science to listen is if we're also willing to listen, and so, um, let's let's just hear it out, and then we'll talk about some of the things that come up. So, here's Hank on SciShow Psych. Hopefully, you have never had a near-death experience, but if you have, I'm glad that you survived it. Uh, also, maybe this sounds familiar. A blinding white light, your life flashing before your eyes, floating out of your body and looking down on that body from above. Honestly, it might sound familiar either way. At this point, the near-death experience is a bit of a cliche in pop culture, but this stuff 
really happens. Near-death experiences are most likely caused by a bunch of different processes, and scientists are still figuring out all of the mechanisms, but either way, these experiences probably aren't as mystical as they seem. There are accounts of near-death experiences going back to ancient Greece, and because modern medicine can bring people back from the brink of death more often, they are even more common now. What's weird is that most people who have them report seeing the same kind of stuff. The white light, the out-of-body experience, the sense of peace, an awareness of being dead. The experiences are so universal that there's actually a standardized questionnaire to evaluate whether or not someone has had a near-death experience. But when it comes to understanding why they happen, things are less clear. For one thing, there's virtually nothing medically, demographically, or psychologically different about the so-called experiencers compared to non-experiencers who have also almost died. They're also just really hard to study. It's generally upon to almost kill someone while they're in an fMRI machine. Also, studies of near-death experiences have major sampling issues. Studies done after the fact rely on experiencers identifying themselves as participants, which can cause some serious bias. But other studies, like ones where experimenters waited on call for people to go into cardiac arrest, have a hard time getting enough participants for a good sample size. Also, waiting around for people to start dying not a super fun job. But even though they're hard to study, there are tons of ideas about what could cause these experiences. And they're probably not just caused by one thing. One idea is that rather than experiencers seeing and feeling the same things because they're actually having similar experiences, they see and feel them because they expect to. This kind of thing happens all the time, like in eyewitness testimonies. People are pretty suggestible, so it's reasonable to think that the cliches about near-death experiences might impact what what people actually see and feel during them. Another view is that they are a psychological response to the threat of death. Beginning in the 1930s, psychologists suggested that these experiences were a result of depersonalization, where you feel detached from your identity and what's happening to you. Basically, you know you're dying, but you feel completely detached from it. It's like it's not real. Among other things, that would also explain why near-death experiences cause calmness and peacefulness. More recent research has argued that dissociation where your consciousness seems independent from your real physical experience is actually to blame. Daydreaming is a totally normal example of this, but an extreme case is an out-of-body experience. And there's some evidence to back this one up. All kinds of trauma often result in dissociation, so there are tests to clinically identify it. The tests ask respondents to identify how often they do things like totally zone out while watching TV or have no recollection of an important event. A study from 2000 looked at 134 subjects who had come close to death, 96 of whom had near-death experiences. They found that the experiencers scored much higher on the dissociation test, meaning that they were more prone to mentally check out of situations. It's also possible that near-death experiences could be entirely or partly biological, and there are a number of possible mechanisms that could explain the things experiencers see and feel. For instance, the combination of fear and depriving the optic nerve of oxygen has been known to cause tunnel vision. And when faced with the extreme stress of dying, the brain probably releases all kinds of chemicals to protect itself, which can lead to some of those other weird symptoms. A 2004 study showed that out-of-body experiences can be triggered by stimulating the temporoparietal junction, a part of the brain that plays a role in processing information from your environment and in distinguishing between yourself and others. Experiments with an anesthesia called ketamine have also suggested that under stress, the brain might release neurotransmitters that cause detached, dreamlike states or hallucinations. And other studies 
studies have shown that stimulating a part of the midbrain called the locus ceruleus can release noradrenaline, which is involved in fear and stress reactions and can alter your emotions and memories. Both of those processes could be related to peaceful emotions, hallucinations, and that sense of your life flashing before your eyes. So it's possible that near-death experiences are caused by a combination of all of these factors, biological and otherwise. Of course, there are critics of these studies, and they make a good case. They argue that if these are normal biological mechanisms associated with the stress and trauma of death, why doesn't everyone who almost dies have them? We don't know, but for people who do have them, there are a whole bunch of scientific explanations for where they might come from. And whether they're caused by biology, psychology, or something in between, near-death experiences can teach us a lot about how our brains work, and that weird thing that we call consciousness. Thanks for watching this episode of SciShow Psych, brought to you by our patrons on Patreon. If you would like to help support the show and help us keep making episodes like this one, you can go to patreon.com scishow. We very much appreciate everybody who does that. So the first thing I'm going to say is that I'm grateful that he says up front that um, really science doesn't quite know what's going on, but they suspect it's a number of things. And they list off the things such as, you know, the oxygen deprivation of the brain, everybody's favorite, um, psychological response to to trauma and or death, uh, the uh, disassociation disorder that can sometimes be caused by trauma and so forth, um, causing the feelings of love and, or, I'm sorry, peace, uh, peaceful feelings of detachment. Um, but the, the biggest thing that I find um, inadequate about this assessment, and, and don't get me wrong, I actually, I, I hear what he's saying and I think, yeah, it makes sense that science would, would conclude that. It totally makes sense to me. Why would they believe that there's a God out there? Why would they believe that we're all part of this infinite source that is uh, that we have infinite connection to and have lived forever and, it, you know, that this physical sphere is only temporary? Why would they believe that unless they can find real genuine evidence of it? And honestly, near-death experiences is one of the greatest evidences that I've heard of in terms of physical evidence, because people have these experiences and you have to account for them in some way, which this video is attempting to do, um, and science is attempting to do. And I think this is a fairly good summation of what science has concluded. But what I find inadequate about this whole thing is the extent to which all these things happen. You know, he, he talks about the light, seeing, seeing a bright light, seeing a tunnel, seeing, you know, having feelings of peace, um, maybe even seeing loved ones that have died, um, maybe even seeing God. We'll, we'll throw that in there, even though he didn't bring that up. Um, the explanations uh, that he gives are, first off, okay, expectation, fair enough, if you consider that society's expectations are masked on every individual regardless of their own personal feelings. Because um, a huge portion, if not majority, of the near-death experiences that I've read were by people who either didn't believe in God, were agnostic, or just flat-out expected blackness. Not blackness, but, you know, to cease to exist 
when they died. And so expectation, I mean, if there was expectation, there would be a lot more variance in what people experienced, I think, in my opinion. And uh, there is a great variability in what people experience, but not in the ways that you would expect from somebody who's experiencing things because they expect to. You know, there's great variance in in the type of landscapes they see. There's great variance in the in the type of plants, animals, people that they see. The uh, the part of space and the kinds of creatures they see from other planets and and their own experiences of visiting various historical events um, on the Earth or from the Earth, and um, all of these are consistent with this view that we've kind of shaped around near-death experiences, which is admittedly bias. I mean, let's face it. We believe in near-death experiences. Therefore, when we hear of one, we justify it in terms of what we already have heard and what we already understand, just as science is doing on the other side, where they're saying, well, we understand this is this is something that's created from the brain and the body, and, and that's just all there is to it, you know, and, and so they find a way to fit it. But, you know, for example, tunnel vision, okay? I've, I've heard this argument over and over that it creates tunnel vision and therefore it could create the feeling of going through a tunnel. But when you read about people who describe the tunnel, they may say going through a tunnel and then they see a light and so forth. Those, okay, maybe you could justify that. But people talk about this swirling vortex of, you know, like two storms inside each other of varying colors that they're shooting through. And they say they're, they feel like they're going, you know, according to the tunnel, they're going faster than the speed of light. I mean, I, I know people who have had tunnel vision for various things. I've never heard them say ever anyone suggest that that tunnel has the effect of shooting forward at a high rate of speed, let alone, you know, like beyond the speed of light. Not to mention that if you think about it, traveling at the speed of light in just about any size tunnel should not even look like a tunnel unless it is something so vast or something that is more than just tunnel vision. Okay, it, it, the, if, if you're hearing tunnel vision, or if you're thinking tunnel vision, you're going to have to account for a whole lot more than just the idea of your vision being tunneled because it's so much more than that. People will stand and they'll turn around and they'll look back in the tunnel and they can see their body back there. And then they'll they'll turn and see forward. It's like they, they can look at the side of the tunnel and they can see other ways traveling out from that tunnel. Now you might say, well, that's the tunnel vision following their... But you, you got a lot to account for there. A lot to account for. What about the people next to you in the tunnel? I mean, what about the uh, the various spirits that are following you or with you in the tunnel often. I mean, are they just plastered onto that tunnel vision? I, You know, I'm not saying that uh, tunnel vision cannot be an explanation for all experiences. For some, maybe. Maybe it could. But for most of them, the majority that I've read who bring up a tunnel, they have more description than what can be explained by tunnel vision. The light Okay, people, you know, bright light. Yeah, okay, oxygen deprivation and so forth, or whatever it is, could cause um, flashes of light. Many of us who have been hit in the head with something have seen a flash of light. 
and so forth. And if that happened in slow motion, yeah, it might, it, it, it could cause that sense of light. I acknowledge that. But the light that people are seeing is so much more than that. They're, they describe, they, first off, they say words can't describe, you know, if I, if you hit me on the head and I see a flash of light, even if I take all the time I can to describe in detail what it'll, what it would be, I probably couldn't go over 30 seconds. Uh, just, uh, I mean, it was really bright. It was um, really quick and it, I, you know, and if, and if this light, that's just a mental light because the head was just hit or whatever, um, is sitting before them and staying there before them, then you've got to account for spirits coming in and out of this light and colors of all sorts, tendrils of what almost look like electrical fields branching out from it. And, and they say that it was, it was more than just a light. It was like it encompassed the universe. And, you know, and they try to describe that and they're like, I can't describe it because, you know, it was everything and it was all encompassing. And inside that light, I had every answer to every question that I could ever imagine. And those answers came to me. I mean, that's, that's more than a, you know, flash from getting hit on the head or a light that is like plastered in front of the eyes because of, I don't know, oxygen deprivation or something. That's, you've, you've got to account for it in its full sense. You can't just say, well, it's probably this, unless that fits every, you know, at least 50% of what we hear from the lights. And that's not, that's just not the case from my reading of this. And it's true that most of these scientists have not read all the near-death experiences that we have. They just haven't. And if they did, they might think we're all crazy, or they might think, wait a minute, there's more to this than what we've given it credit for. And hopefully they would start looking deeper into it. Because let's face it, this is, they're never going to come to a conclusion, not a conclusion, that's not a fair thing, they're never going to really properly study and assess this until they start really talking to the people who have experienced, really assessing their symptoms, really not just looking at what their physical symptoms were, but taking into account the individual elements within their experience. You can't just immediately write it off. As a scientist, you ought to be approaching it by saying, okay, what we have as scientific knowledge so far puts it in this category of an absolute unknown. So let's explore it within that unknown and come across the various elements and see what conclusions, if any, we can come to. And all they've done is touched on, you know, the tunnel, light, feelings of peace. And and then they just stop. And you're like, no, you've got to keep going. No scientist would, would, if they want to understand, say, you know, South American soil, they wouldn't just, you know, fly by, you know, and, and drop out of the plane, grab a soil sample and jump back in the plane, fly back to America and do all its assessment. And then say, this is what South American soil is. That's just not a representative 
a fair representative sample. You got to get thousands of samples from various places and different locations, different situations, and contexts. Have them, you know, uh, um, studied with, you know, in the context of their surrounding forests or landscape or deserts or whatever. You have to weigh these out. And, and if people aren't willing to do that with near-death experiences, they will not come to a scientific understanding of what near-death experiences really are. They just can't. So coming back to that uh, feeling of peace, feeling of love, he talks about this disassociation, okay, which is also their expl explanation for the uh, out-of-body experience. There are disassociations that can take place from trauma, from physical, psychological, mental trauma of various sorts, including nearly dying. And uh, often they will feel a sense of like, well, where am I? Now, being where I am and studying this stuff, I suspect that some of them are have left the body and are having a bit of a near-death experience. And then they maybe just don't experience enough more to call it that. But beside the point, beside the point, let's just, you know, go with this, that there's a mental condition that can often um, take place from trauma where you feel disassociated from your body and disassociated with the death itself. So that, as he says, they don't feel like they're dying because they're disassociated from it. And he says that can explain um, the feelings of peace and, and comfort. Makes sense, except, again, you got to take into account the extent of this peace that people are feeling. They're not just feeling like, oh, it's a nice Saturday morning, comfortable, I'm on vacation. Feels pretty good. They're talking about an overwhelming active, not a passive feeling, but an active, pervasive, almost overwhelmingly powerful sense of love and peace and contentment and acceptance. Feeling that is so strong that some of them say, if if this doesn't stop, I'm going to explode. They don't even know how to quantify what they're experiencing. It feels so infinite. It feels so complete. Now, not everybody feels it to that extent. Most of them feel it about as strong as you might feel. A wonderful Christmas morning with the family and you're just feeling this loving togetherness. Some of them will, will say it's about like that. That's the very low end. Now, I don't know anybody who just wakes up on a comfortable Saturday morning, not knowing what's going on or whatever, but feeling content, is feeling that level of peace and love. I don't, I don't feel that feeling very often. Comes sometimes at Christmas time or birthdays or whatever, you know, in, in times when, you know, you find out somebody has... Um, maybe overcome their cancer, and it's, it's like special occasions, really special occasions, when uh, you realize that, that, you know, how special life is, and so forth, and it's love and contentment. That's not the kind of feeling that you're likely to feel just from a dissociation disorder. That, that's just, that just doesn't fit. If you're just going to a default comfort level, let's even bump it up a few states and say uh, uh, that, you know, default comfort level plus some some uh, dopamine release from the brain whatever it's still not accounting for that level of peace and that you know greatest level of peace and love that we feel on this earth that's the bottom level of what people 
are experiencing. Over 50%, I would say, just throwing that number out there, uh, guessing based on my reading of these things, well over 50% say that the feeling is more loving and more peaceful than anything they have ever felt in their life. And most of these people are not wordy people. They're not writers. They're not authors who craft words or poets who, who love to, you know, push with hyperbole and so forth. They don't know how to use words. They just say, it was just, I can't explain it. It, it was more loving and peaceful than anything I've ever felt. And, and so you've got to account for the moreness of it. Now, as far as seeing people and the expectations and so forth, you've got to, you've got to account for the fact that, I, you know, I can't even give a number. I think only one, only one experience ever comes to mind where somebody saw somebody in their near-death, two, I can think of two, where somebody saw somebody in their near-death experience that was still alive. Everybody else is dead already dead. And even those two who saw the people who are alive, one, they just saw the face of their doctor. Okay. And that kind of thing can happen. They're not conversing with them per se. Maybe sometimes that can happen. I don't know. Maybe there's memories from previous to this life where they're conversing with this person and they experience that memory. I don't know, but it's so rare. People are so often seeing dead people who have died. And they'll see their second grade school teacher. They'll see their their uh, uh, grandma's sister that uh, used to come over. And, and I mean, they see people that they would not expect to see, but that have died. And people that they expect to see often are not there. You know, they're looking for their father. Where's my dad? He died three years ago. Where's my dad? And they're telling him, you know, the other spirits are saying, he'll be with us shortly, or or he, you know, you'll get to see him before you leave, or, you know, and and it's like, some and, and sometimes they don't. They don't end up seeing the person they expect to see. Expectation is not sufficient. Again, we talked about expectation. It just doesn't, just doesn't fit sufficiently. Okay, the, I can see why someone would conclude those things, but it's just not enough. It's just not enough. I mean, if your kid comes home and says, I saw an alien at school today. Oh, ha, ha, ha. You don't believe them. You know, just like a scientist doesn't believe them. But if kids start showing up and it shows up in the news and, and there's, people have snapshots, you start wondering, right? You have to start wondering. And if these stories that people are hearing are consistent, you have to start studying it. Now, science considers um, near-death experiences much like, well, they don't even consider it like aliens because science genuinely or generally acknowledges that there probably is life in the universe. I say generally because not everybody does and so forth, but they're not as readily or ready to accept this idea of near-death experiences, of us living beyond the grave, of having consciousness beyond the grave. And I think that's unfortunate, not so much because they should accept it on faith, but as scientists, they really should look at these stories and interview people individually and get more details, not just of what their conditions were 
in order to diagnose. Oh, it's when oxygen deprivation and disassociation happen at the same time. That's when you have a near-death experience. First off, how many people <clears throat> have both of those at the time of death? Is it the 10% that have near-death experiences? If so, okay, I can see that may be, you know, fair for you to start with that conclusion. But don't end there. Don't end there. I'm, I'm guessing it's much less than that, but, you know, I don't know. Anyway, interesting. And I think it's worth considering these things because, uh, because people are going to, if you bring up near-death experiences with people who don't believe in an afterlife, <clears throat> they're going to have these explanations. And they're going to try to say, well, I, I read an article that said that it was this. And they'll give tunnel vision as an explanation. Be like, well then, explain to me why Bob had a guide at his side who he was communicating with and said, you can go in any of these paths along the way, but, uh, but I suggest you head toward the light. And as you're heading toward the light, there's questions that you have and the light is answering these questions and, and you know, explain to me that, you know, well, I, you know, I have to check the science on that. Science is going to keep trying and I hope they keep trying but I hope they're open to the possibility that there's more going on here than just oxygen deprivation and disassociation and, you know, a knock to the head causing a white light. It's just not, it's just not sufficient. And, and so show me more. Show me more. I want to know more because, you know, from my perspective as a believer... I would like to know what kinds of things are more likely to cause near-death experiences. The, oh, the other thing I wanted to bring up is they talk about how people who have near-death experiences are often people who are more likely to zone out or, or to be, you know, to maybe drift concentration or, you know, things that, that they're disassociating a little bit with their life or whatever. They're very imaginative and things like that. But the problem with that is that we find from the study of the after effects of a near-death experience is that people have many of these symptoms. They will often find themselves in meditative states while eating lunch or, or whatever, and, they just, and they'll zone out and have these, uh, you know, kind of moments of feeling insight coming to them or, or different things, maybe, you know, I mean, there's a reason that the, the cliche of, of you know, a sci-fi and fantasy prophecy is the person kind of stares into the middle distance and then starts speaking with a weird voice and things like that. It's because, you know, historically, many people who have gifts of prophecy have these moments of insights where they, quote-unquote, zone out and the revelation comes. Okay, and if it weren't for the knowledge of proneness to near-death experiences, which often comes from a near, nearly dying experience or a near-death experience, either one, if somebody wasn't prone to these kinds of things, then yeah, that would be a weird, questionable thing. But if somebody is prone to these kinds of things, then, and, and, and we acknowledge that and we say, this is common among those who have had these kinds of experiences then they're going to have to answer for that, too. So, anyway. Very interesting. 
So, if you would like to contact the podcast, you can do so by either emailing Podcast at gmail.com or by calling 970-NDECast. And once again, thank you all for listening. Thanks to all of you so much for your patronage and for your support.